Well, we are uh, knee-deep now in a sermon series that we started all the way back in 2016, and I've been preaching chapter by chapter each fall, and that is through the book of Mark in a series entitled, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. Why do I entitle it, Jesus Is? Because I want to highlight the point of the gospel of Mark, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God. All right, and Mark does this in story after story after story by showing us that Jesus has power and authority over nature, demons, blindness, paralysis, sickness, curses, death, and finally eternal salvation. Jesus is the Son of God, and in every story we see how he proves that to us. We're going to see that in a very bold way here This morning, as we turn our eyes to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, in a message entitled, A Greater Physician. A Greater Physician. So as I began to pray about this message, the Lord laid a a wonderful illustration on my heart that pertains to me specifically in my years in sports. So I want to tell you a story, and I'll show you how that story applies to where we're going to be in in Mark 5. So in 1985, there was a pitcher from the University of Texas who became a Boston Red Sox. And he became one of the most famous pitchers in the history of Major League Baseball. He's known today as simply as the Rocket, Roger Clemens. Well, in 1985, as a young player with the Red Sox, he began to experience some pain in his shoulder. And the Red Sox told him, just pitch through it. It happens to young guys all the time. Just pitch through the pain, and you'll be fine. But Roger Clemens' agent said, no, I've watched, and your fastball's getting slower and slower. There's something wrong there. We need to get it checked out. And so on the advice of a friend, Roger Clemens went to Birmingham, Alabama, and he met with this obscure young surgeon, this orthopedic surgeon and the guy took, the look, took a look at his shoulder and found out that he had a torn labrum. And he went in arthrosco- arthroscopically, I love saying that word, and repaired his shoulder. And eight months later, he not only came back throwing harder, but he even struck out 20 batters in a single game. Well, guess what happened? Every single athlete in the country found out about this so-called obscure surgeon all the way in middle of nowhere in Birmingham, Alabama. And today, even the casual sports fan knows the name Dr. James Andrews. When any athlete in high school, in college, or in the pros gets hurt, they do whatever they can to dial the phone number to the office of James Andrews. And the reason why is he is the best surgeon in the world when it comes to repairing ligaments arthroscopically. In fact, they say he does up to 50 surgeries a week thousands a year, and people flock all over the world because they know if they have a need, he's simply the best. He is simply the best. Well, that may mean a lot in the sports world. There are some of you in the room right now that may have a sore shoulder, and you're thinking, I wonder what his phone number is. (laughs) But what we're going to look at as we open up the text here is something a lot more significant and a lot more eternal. We're going to see two different people who have very serious physical and spiritual needs. And they realize the one person 
who can meet those needs. They realize after looking for a human physician, what they needed was a greater physician. And that physician is Jesus Christ. And so if you, ha- you have a need for a greater physician in your life, someone who can minister to your physical and, and spiritual needs and your very soul this morning, would you join me by turning to the book of Mark? It's the second book of the New Testament. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you our big idea. And here it is in one sentence. Jesus is the Son of God who is greater than all human physicians with total power over disease and death. I'll say it again. Jesus is the Son of God who is greater than all human physicians with total power over disease and death. So again, join me in Mark chapter 5. We'll be in verses 21 through 43. If you don't have a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you or beside you. Be on page 999 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. Again, those that can't stand, this is a long reading, so if you have trouble standing, it's okay to be seated for this one. This is a long reading, but stand if you can. Again, Mark chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 21 and work our way to the end of the chapter in verse 43. Hear God's word to us through his servant Mark. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and, and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a, a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of our Lord, and may he bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we love you. We thank you and praise you for the day that you have made, and we rejoice because you made it. We also need you in it every hour and every minute. And Lord, I pray specifically this morning that as we walk into this sanctuary with needs far greater than we could ever know, that we have a Savior in the Lord Jesus who is far greater than we could ever know. And I pray, Father, that where I'm limited, that you would go beyond me, that you would hide me behind the cross, and that people, as they hear the preaching of the word, would hear the very voice of Jesus calling out and saying, come to me. Father, we need a touch from Jesus today, and we're begging you for it. Be with us in our midst, and bless the preaching and teaching of your word that we may be changed from a touch from our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, Amen. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's Word. I know that was a long one, but a good one. So let's walk through this together. It's always good for me, at least, to, to picture this in my mind, okay? Some of the times when we read, and, and, and reading is not easy for me, it's a difficult pleasure is what I would say. Uh, the best thing that we can do in the midst of reading is start letting that movie play in your mind. In fact, that's why last week... Uh, Jody chose to, to play a video of the actual scene so that we can start playing this in our minds. So here, get this picture in your mind, okay? So last week we talked about in the beginning of Mark 5, he gets out of the boat and goes into this demon-possessed region, the region of the Gerasenes, and he sends demons into the pigs, and the pigs go over the cliff, and the people get angry, and he decides to get back on his boat and head home. So now he's going back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the Galilean region, and this region is not Gentile, but Jewish. And guess what? They know Jesus, and they know his reputation, and they're ready when he arrives. He gets out of the boat, and the crowds are already there, waiting to get an up-close and personal look at this Jesus. But as he gets out of the boat, we see there are two different types of people that are addressed in this passage that have a need from Jesus. We're going to see a ruler of a synagogue, a prominent religious leader, and then some anonymous woman who doesn't even have a name. And here's what I want to say about that as we walk into the text. Last week I said when you read the Bible, you need to look for key words that come up over and over and over and over again to know what the main point of the passage is, what God is trying to tell us through the Holy Spirit. Well, in this particular passage, there are other details that we need to pay attention to because here's the deal. The writers inspired of the Holy Spirit specifically chose certain details in every story to highlight eternal truths. All right, Mark, in this passage, does not highlight every person that Jesus is healing. He specifically chooses two different people from two completely different walks of life who are dealing with two completely different issues, and he's doing it very specifically so that we know between the, the young ruler of the synagogue and this woman who been dealing with a hemorrhage for 12 years, that somewhere in between those two people fits all of us. Cedar Street Baptist Church. Every single one of you walked in this room today. Some of you are young. Some of you are in the golden years. Some of you are new believers. Some of you are mature, faithful followers. Some of you are dealing with financial issues. Some of you are doing, dealing with physical issues, relational issues. 
Every one of us needs a touch from Jesus. Every one of us needs a greater physician. And this is why Mark chose two different types of people to highlight this one eternal truth. So what I want to do as we walk through the text is to look at three different stages in the process of pursuing a greater physician. So keep that Bible open. Okay, we're going to walk through this passage, a lot to cover, and not a lot of time to get there, but we're going to make it. All right, so let's look, number one, at great need for a greater physician. All right, so let's start with Jairus the ruler. Okay, verses 22 through the first part of 23 says this. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And the first part of 23 says, and imploring him earnestly, same thing as begging, which is what we talked about last week. He said to him, my little daughter is at the point of death. So we got to stop right there and say, okay, why did Mark, inspired of the Holy Spirit, include these details about Jairus? What do we know? We know he has a name. In fact, if you didn't know it was important that Jairus is mentioned by name, he says Jairus by name. Mark is saying, pay attention. I'm giving him a specific name, and I'm telling you a specific title so that you know in this society, this person is important. All right, what do we know his title? He's the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we don't know specifically what his role was, but most likely he was either a Pharisee, okay, a teacher of the law, or someone that worked closely with Pharisees. So he was a very important religious leader in the community, and we know that because of his title and the fact that he is mentioned by name. But here's the deal. He's like every other human being. He's broken, and he has needs. And what is his need? He's got a 12-year-old daughter that's about to die. A 12-year-old daughter that's about to die, and he hears of this person named Jesus who might be able to bring healing to his daughter. And so he goes out, and falls at the feet of Jesus and begs him to come. That's Jairus. Now, let's look at the other character. All right, follow me in verses 25 through 26. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had but was no better but rather grew worse. Now, Jairus has a name. Jairus has a title. Jairus is prominent. This woman has no name. It says a woman. She's anonymous. This woman has no title. None of us know what she did for a living. And we also know because she was bleeding, she was an outcast of society. Okay, if you read any other parts of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Leviticus, I know it's some, some tough treading to get through Leviticus. There's a lot of laws in there, but a lot of the laws pertain to holiness and specifically blood. All right, the priests were very concerned about maintaining the cleanliness, both physically and spiritually, of the kingdom of God represented by the Israelites. And therefore, blood was a very serious issue. And those that were bleeding to the point where the priests could not stop the bleeding, they were cast out of the camp and known as ceremonially unclean. So if this woman had a discharge for 12 years, she was an outcast. She wasn't part of the group. All right, so this woman doesn't have a name. This woman is an outcast, and she has a serious issue that has chronically been debilitating for 12 years. And the Bible even says she spent all the time and the money she had trying to find any physician that would heal it. 
There's our two people, Jairus the ruler and the anonymous woman, two completely different sides of society, both with a great need. They're broken and they need the healing touch of Jesus. And we need to remember this. So are we. You know, as I was preparing this message, I began to think about Cedar Street Baptist Church in 2019. And I began to think about all the things that we've been praying for as a church. And I remember not too long ago, this year, in this church, we had a serious need from a prominent family. And I saw 300 people flood into this room and beg and plead for God to do a work, and he did it. And guess what else? In the midst of that, there's been hundreds of anonymous needs that none of us know but just you and Jesus. And he heard those too. God cares about us all. Jesus has a concern for every single one of us. The loving and prominent and respected families of this community and the families that have no name. The families that go under the radar. The families that you don't even know. God loves them too. And Jesus has enough time to hear every single one of their prayers. That's what he wants us to know. We're broken people. We all have great need for a greater physician. That's number one. Number two, let's look at great faith in a greater physician. All right, so let's look at Jairus and let's look at this anonymous woman. All right, first Jairus. Let's look at uh, verses 22 through 23. So the second part of verse 22 says, seeing him, meaning seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. In verse 23, it says, and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Great faith from Jairus the ruler. Why do we know this is great faith? Well, you got to stop for a second and think about his status in the community. All right, he's a ruler of a synagogue, which means he probably is a Pharisee or the associate of a Pharisee. And I don't know if you picked this up by reading the other Gospels, but the Pharisees didn't like Jesus because Jesus often rejected their way of life. He rejected religious leaders that thought highly of themselves and more highly than they ought to think. He made their way of life very difficult. In fact, it was the Jewish leaders who put Jesus on the cross. And so for Jairus to see Jesus and for him to leave the synagogue and fall at the feet of Jesus, that would have brought shame on him as the ruler of a synagogue. But he didn't care. He had faith. He had a need. And he demonstrated that faith that Jesus could meet that need. And he fell at his feet and said, come with me and please just touch my daughter. I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. If you would just come to my house and you would just touch my daughter, she would be made well. She would be made well. That was his faith. And he was willing to be made a fool for Jesus. Now, let's talk about the woman. Listen to verses 27 through 28. It says, She, the anonymous woman, had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She also, great need, hemorrhaging for, 20, or for 12 years, and great faith, why was it great faith for her? Maybe you would say, well, she's already an outcast of society. Who cares if she bows at the feet of Jesus? She's got nothing to lose. Yes, she does. 
Guess why? If she was ceremonially unclean, that meant she had to step out in public, and those people typically stayed in private because they were ridiculed. People were scared to death of them. But she made herself public. She made herself exposed to ridicule, and she did something else. She touched the hem of the garment of Jesus Christ, and the moment that she touched him, the law says that Jesus himself would be unclean. However, as we now learn, Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he is not a servant to the law. So she could touch him, and he would not be unclean, but he could make her clean. So she had a lot to lose by doing what she did, but she had simple faith. I mean, she, 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 she didn't even say, well, I got to get him to pray this prayer. I got to get him to do this. She says, all I got to do is get close enough to this man named Jesus of Nazareth and touch the clothes he's wearing and the same threads of fabric that are touching him. If they touch me, I'll never bleed again. I got to get to him. I got to bow before him. I got to reach out and touch. And that's exactly what she did. And here's the deal. Both of them found a great need, and that great need led them to the feet of Jesus Christ. They did not care who was watching. They bowed before Jesus. And so I, I want to stop for a second, and I just want to say this, and I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm here to confess to you, in my life as a Christian, there have been times I've been tempted and challenged in this as well. Here's the question I want to ask you, Cedar Street, and I want you to think about this, okay? Was there ever a time that you were attempting or tempted to be ashamed of Jesus because of a situation in your life? I'm going to pick on the men because I am one, and I know what it is to be a man because that's how God's wired me, all right? Let me tell you a time when men are tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. The picture I always have in my mind is this. I remember as a young Christian... All right, gathered around the tailgate of my truck, men hanging over the tailgate, cold drink in your hand, all right, chewing the cud, acting a fool. Then all of a sudden, the desire to be one of the guys is a greater desire than to be a follower of Jesus. You would say things that make you one of the crowd instead of making you a follower. You will say anything that will affirm you publicly and deny what you believe privately. And I can't speak for women. I'm sure there are other temptations that you have. I can only speak for men because I am one. I know what it is to be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you this. The people that know him best, that desire him most, they do not care what other people think. And I'll say this to you publicly, and I will say it in my prayers privately or counseling any of you privately. Don't you ever be ashamed of Jesus. Don't you ever be ashamed of Jesus. I'm not saying that we take this Bible and beat people over the head with it and, and shove our faith down people's throats. That's not right either. But what I am saying is you'll have an opportunity probably this week to take a quiet, confident stand for your faith for other people that would want to mock you for your faith. And you don't have to scream from the mountaintops, but you can take a stand for Jesus. You can take a stand for Jesus. Don't you be ashamed of him. Don't you be ashamed of our Lord and Savior. The world's going to make it more shameful. You need to care what Jesus thinks. You need to care about Jesus more than anything else. And here's something else important. Their posture reveals that not only are they desperate, but that Jesus himself 
is the object of their worship. And so another question would be, do you want Jesus or do you just want Jesus to do something? Do you want him or just what he can do? Now, again, I'll confess to you, when I came to faith, I was broken. I was in my mid-20s. I had done a lot uh, corporately and professionally, but I was empty. I was questioning the meaning of life. I was questioning the existence of God. I was utterly miserable, and I called out to God, and I said, listen, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but I want to find out. And I kept calling out to him. Now, yes, I wanted him to make my life more bearable, yes. But as, as I went to him, in all honesty, I began to realize that it's not that I needed Jesus to do something. What I needed was Jesus. You do have physical needs and you do have material needs and you do have relational needs and it's good and right to pray for those. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But what you really need is Jesus and if you have him, you need more of him. That's what you were made for. God made you for an eternal relationship with the God who loves you and who created you and desires to be with you forever. That's why you're made and that's what we need. Sin separated that. Jesus is bringing it back together. All right, so we need to see that Jesus is the object of their worship and he's the object of their faith. And there's danger. There's danger in seeking signs over seeking a savior. Listen, I just wanna be honest with you. I'm as interested as anybody in this room to see God work a miracle because you know what? It's exciting, right? When you can see God do something miraculous, you could point right to that and say, see, God is real. See, Jesus is risen. See, what I believe is true. I love seeing that. I want to see that. But guess what? I need to love Jesus more than I love his miracles. All right? The way that God does the most work in our lives is not through signs, wonders, and miracles. The people in the churches that chase after those things, they're typically the most immature Christians. They never grow beyond looking out the window for miracles. The number one way that Christ will minister to you is right here, through his word. I had a pastor uh, that recently I heard speak, a pastor from Washington, D.C., and he said he went to an interdenominational revival. And he said, in the revival... For almost an hour, he said, these young Christians, he said, in the very beginning, he was impressed by this, but at the end, he was very discouraged by this. In the beginning of the service, all these young Christians in their 20s and 30s stood up and were singing and praising, and then they began to cry out, give us a word, Jesus, give us a word, give us a word, come down, Holy Spirit, come down. And he said one thing, every single one of them had closed Bibles sitting on their pews. So what they were silently saying is, Jesus, your Bible is not enough. What you've given us is not enough. Your word is simply not enough. Give us another sign. Give us another miracle. And that's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus said, if you're looking for signs and miracles, whatever miracle I do, it's just never going to be enough. You're going to want another one. Meet me in my word. It's enough. His word is enough. It is. This word is living and active. It cuts and it restores. It reveals and it renews. There's nothing like God's word. And I know it's not the easiest book in the world to read because there's a lot of things that need to be spiritually discerned, but I guarantee all of us need his word. We need his word. All right, we need to have faith. 
that God can minister to us through his spirit and through his word. So we've talked about great need for a greater physician, great faith in a greater physician. Now let's look number three, great healing from a greater physician. Now I want to start now with the woman, okay, because the, the passage gives us her healing first. So listen to verses 29 through 34. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So what type of healing are we talking about here? This is a miracle. It's a miracle physically. All right, she went to every other doctor she could find for 12 years, 12 years, over a decade. Nobody could heal her. She gave all her time. She gave all her money. She had no status in society. She's probably hiding in a little one-bedroom hut. And she comes out and asks Jesus and reaches for the hem of his garment. And he says, your faith has made you well. She was healed physically, but she was also healed spiritually. She's now no longer ceremonially unclean. And the passage doesn't tell us what happens after this, but now she can remain in society. She doesn't have to go back to the dark closet anymore. She can rejoin society because she has been healed from what casts her out of society. Now, here's a point you may miss. Okay, I know we have some medical people in the room here. If you've ever been in an emergency room, they have what's called a triage, right? So a triage nurse will come out and decide, okay, does this person have a paper cut or are they going to die in 10 minutes if I don't get them back there? Now stop and think about this for a moment. Jesus meets Jairus, the ruler, and Jairus says, my daughter's going to die if you don't come right now. And Jesus begins to walk with him. But then he comes across this woman who apparently has had this disease for a long time, who's not a very prominent member of the society, and he stops and takes time to bring ministry and healing to her. Now, those of you in the medical world would say that wouldn't happen in the emergency room. All right, this would be medical malpractice to neglect for a moment somebody who's going to die to minister to someone who's had this issue for 12 years and can hang on for another few hours. But Jesus stops and heals her to show the world he's not as concerned with time as we are, and his plan is sovereign, and it doesn't make sense to us. Now, why would he do that? We're going to find out later in the text. All right, we find out when he gets to Jairus' house. Listen to verses 40 through 42. But he, meaning Jesus, put them all outside and took the uh, child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, I cannot help, when I read this passage, to think about another story in the Gospel of John, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And why do I think that way? I want you to hear me, because this applies to any of you in this room that have unanswered prayers. Okay, so listen closely. 
In John chapter 11, we hear about Mary and Martha, these sisters whom Jesus loves, and they have a brother named Lazarus, and Lazarus is getting ready to die. But in verse 6 of John 11, it says, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He heard that his friend's going to die, and instead of racing to his friend, he stays where he's at a couple days longer. Why would Jesus do that? For the same reason that Jesus took his time with this anonymous woman and actually waited for Jairus' daughter to die. At the end of John 11, he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that he's not here so that you may believe, but let me go. And then he says at the end of the passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believe in me, believes in me should never die. That's what he says in John 11, and then here we see the same thing in Mark 5. He purposely let her die, and then when he showed up, he said, she's not dead. When I'm here, she's just sleeping. She's fixing to get up and get her a little snack. Let me in there for a few minutes. Somebody get the Pop-Tart started. I'm getting this girl up. All right? That's exactly what he did. He showed up, and he brought healing. If, now, again... His plan in the midst of it, if you were walking with him and he's healing this woman from the hemorrhaging and you'd see, you'd tug him on his, on his, on his garment and say, listen, we got to get going, Jesus. Somebody's going to die. And Jesus says, I'm sovereign. I know what I'm doing. So let me say this to all of you who've reached out to Jesus for healing in some area of your life. If he hasn't answered your prayer the way that you've asked, there's a good chance he's got something better in mind. You don't know his plan. You don't know why he's waiting or why he's answered it in a way that you didn't expect. But can I tell you this? God is good and God does good. It doesn't mean everything that happens is good. It means he's working it together for good in a sovereign way that we can't understand. Jairus has no idea why Jesus didn't run harder to heal his daughter until he gets there and watches the healing himself. And what's the main point of this whole story? It's Jesus is the Son of God who has power over disease and death. That's the point of the story. Jesus last week had power over demons. Now he has power over disease. He has power over death. So I want to say this. When we pray to Jesus, we need to ask for Jesus to do big things. And we need to believe that Jesus can do great things. But that does not mean that he's going to do everything we ask. All right? Because the point is that Jesus is the object of our faith. And it doesn't matter how big our faith is, it matters who our faith is in. Doesn't the scripture say even if you had a, a mustard seed of faith, you could move mountains? It's not the size of your faith, it's the size of Jesus. It's not the size of your faith, it's the size of Jesus Christ. We have to believe that he can do anything, and we need to ask him to do anything. But when he says no or my grace is sufficient, we need to trust that his judgment is better than we can understand. And the reason I take a lot of time to emphasize this is, and you've heard me mention this before, when I first got saved and I moved back to Statesboro, Georgia in 2008, I was living in this dirty apartment, and I had no cable. In fact, this was the last year that you could have a TV with bunny ears and the tinfoil before everything went from analog to digital. And so I had my bunny ears and I had my uh, Reynolds wrap and I could actually get three channels 
and one of them was TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. And let me just tell you something. I was a new Christian. I'd bought my first Bible, and I thought, well, I'm a Christian, and this is Christian television, so I guess I should be watching this. Trinity Broadcasting Network has done more damage to the kingdom of God than all the atheists of the world put together, and I don't want to be anywhere near them when they are judged for what they've done. Don't anybody in this room ever turn on TBN. I'm telling you as your pastor, it will destroy your faith and give you a perverted understanding of Scripture, all right? Because what those people teach is, if you just have enough faith, Jesus will do exactly what you want, exactly when you want, and exactly how you want. The only problem is, that doesn't make Jesus our Messiah, that makes Jesus a genie. And I don't worship Aladdin, I worship Christ, Jesus loves you more than I can put into words, and Jesus may very well heal you from the disease that you're crying out for him to heal you from. But if he doesn't, he's good, and his plan is better. So don't stop asking him. Reach out for the hem of his garment. But trust me, if if the answer is no, it's not because of your lack of faith. It's because his wisdom is greater than yours. I hear this sometimes when I visit many of you. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in love because I want, you, I, want, I want you to be encouraged that if God doesn't answer your prayer, it's not because you didn't pray hard enough. It's not because you don't believe enough. You know, some of the most faithful people in, my, in this church will say, I, well, I know it's going to work out. I, just, I have to have faith. I have to have faith. What I want to say is this. I want you to have faith that Jesus hears your prayers and he will do what's best. Keep praying and trusting that Jesus is going to do a work in your life and leave the results up to him. Because here's the deal. I want you to stop and think about this for just a second. If Jesus answered every single prayer because we believed that he could do it, nobody would die. Guess what happened to the woman who was hemorrhaging? And guess what happened to the 12-year-old that was raised from the dead? Both of them are dead. God healed them to show he was the son of God, but they too experienced physical death. You know, I think of Annie Will Watson over there at Azalea Nursing Home. She's 103 years old. Sometimes I wonder, maybe she is going to beat the odds. But there will come a time where God sees fit to call her home. So if she's sick, I'll pray for her. Because I think it is good and right to pray that God would extend a good quality of life for every human being as long as possible because life is a gift. But if God says, no, it's time I'm calling her home, he knows more than I do. Let me just share this quick story. It hurts my heart to share this, but you need to hear it. One of my good friends, he was a professor at the Guido Bible College. He's a pastor about 30 miles from here. When I was taking a class from him in 2010, he had a two-year-old girl. And she got sick. She got a fever. And he and his wife believed and believed and believed. No shred of doubt whatsoever that God would heal his daughter, and he didn't. A two-year-old died. Now, this man, faithful pastor, preacher, professor, his wife, faithful pastor's wife, family in church every single day of the week. I mean, these people were faithful. Their entire church was fasting and praying, and God said, nope, I have a plan, and that plan includes calling her home. Now, some people in that community said to that man, if you had just had enough faith, your daughter would still be alive. Shame on them. 
And you know why they said that? Because of people like the preachers on TBN that are peddling that garbage who are telling you after you dial that 1-800 number on the screen and sow that $1,000 seed, if you just have enough faith, God will do whatever you want. That's not how the kingdom works. You do need to believe that he has the power to do anything. All right, I think in this church in the past year, who we've laid hands on, I think of Lynette Rigdon. All right, I, I, I think of Charlie Grace. God has answered miraculously, but he's not answered every prayer the way I wish he had because if he did, the pews would be filled with loved ones in this church who've gone on to be with Jesus. I don't know why he says what he says, but I know he's good and I trust him and I want you to trust him. You keep praying and you keep begging and you keep trusting but know that his answer may be yes, it may be no, it may be my grace is sufficient, but he is good, and he does good. The last thing I'll say is this. What he's doing ultimately is restoring a relationship with him. In the book of Genesis, the whole point of Genesis is that God wanted relationship with mankind. The Garden of Eden is a place where God walked with man in the cool of the day. And he, he gave all these beautiful things for Adam and Eve to enjoy. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all the fruits and all the vegetables and everything. But when they sinned against God because of his holiness, he cast them out of the garden and they lost that fellowship with God. But he made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that a seed of the woman, who we know to be Jesus, would come and crush the head of Satan, the serpent, and make a way from death to life so that that fractured relationship between God and man would be restored. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He built a bridge for us to get back to God. And I don't care what you're struggling with today. I don't care if you have marital issues, financial issues, physical issues, relational issues, job issues. Your life is coming down apart at the seams. The, pur the purpose of you being on this earth is to be close to the God who loves you. And Jesus made that possible. And he's calling you to draw close to him. He says in James, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. What a sweet promise our Savior gives us. You know why? Because he's a greater physician, and he knows what our soul needs more than anything else. So I'll close with this final statement as we sum it up. If Jesus is greater than all human physicians, he alone is worthy of our hope, our trust, and our devotion. If Jesus is greater than all human physicians, he alone is worthy of our hope, our trust, and our devotion. So I want, I want you to stir your hearts right now as we get ready for this time of invitation and ask yourself, what are you hoping for in this season of life? It's okay to have dreams. It's okay to have hopes. God may very well have put that hope in your heart because he wants you to ask him, James says, you have not because you've asked not. So we need to ask. We need to pray with an urgency that Jairus had and the anonymous woman had. We need to beg and plead and, and have that urgency and ask him and keep asking him. But the second part of that is trust. Do you trust that he hears your prayers and that his grace is sufficient and he will do what's best? And the third is, does he have your devotion? Would you say in the midst of your struggle that your heart says, God, this hurts, 
God, I wish you would answer this, but I have you. Therefore, I have enough. You will get me through this. Your grace is sufficient. You'll never leave me nor forsake me. As we read in the psalm this morning, Brother Greg read, let my soul thirst for you. Let my flesh faint for you as in a dry and weary land. What your soul needs is God. That need is met through Jesus. Do you know him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? And is he the center of your devotion this morning? As we sing, you come and pray. And get right with the Lord. And draw near to him and he will draw near to you. He knows every need before you even ask it. And the reason why is this. Jesus is a greater physician. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you in your house this morning that you have a love and a concern for rulers of the synagogue and anonymous women and everybody in between. The rich and the poor, the slave and the free, the Jew and the Gentile. Lord, you love them, you made them, you want them, and you're calling them unto yourself this very day. Father, I pray in this room that everyone at the sound of my voice would know the depth of your love for them. It's more than I can put in human words. And I pray they would know the power of Jesus to hear and answer prayer, that they would call out with urgency for their greatest needs. But I also pray, Lord, that we would have such a desire to be close to Jesus that when his answers are not what we want, that we would say, Jesus is enough. Help us to be satisfied in Christ. Have our hearts burn for a desire for his power and presence in our life. Draw us close to him, Lord. And through him, draw us close to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.